You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. This is the Word of God. It says, The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month, month of Chislev. In the 20th years, I was in Susa the citadel. The Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, these are indeed some sad words, but we know that your hand on history has a divine purpose and an end. Father, we know that there is a present glory within us. Without your presence, Lord, we ask that presence that would be here with us today that would touch each person's heart as our pastor comes to expound upon these words to show us our need for you, Father, in things, all things, and through all things. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Nehemiah chapter one. We were adding one verse to last week. Uh, so hopefully we pick up the pace at some point with that. Let's just uh, remember the context of what we're dealing here with in the book of Nehemiah. This is curtain closes for about 300 years and then reopens with John the Baptist entering the scene. What's going on with the historical context of this last act of the Old Testament? Well, God had warned his people that if they continued to turn from him and worship idols, that they would be uh, sent out from the land. They would be exiled and the people were exiled and the beautiful city of Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed. It was basically a pile of rubble uh, with uh, everything that had once been there uh, now uh, destroyed. But God promised that if the people would turn back to him and repent, he would send them back into the land and rebuild what had been destroyed and broken down. What we realize for us as a church right now is we're experienced, even through COVID, have experienced nothing in terms of comparison to what the Israelites went through when they were exiled. But nonetheless, we've been through a difficult time. We've been kind of uprooted over the past year from our normal way of life. And now the Lord, I think, is doing a bit of a work of rebuilding. Uh, he, he is rebuilding uh, who we are as a church, what he has called us to do in this city. And I think many of the themes that are present in the rebuilding of Jerusalem will be incredibly important for this time in the life of our church. And what I wanna consider with you this morning out of this passage is this. We, we're considering our mission as a church, the, the things that he's called us to, uh, namely to make more disciples. What are the first steps that really anyone who's seeking to do God's work should take? What are those foundational pieces that need to be in place as we begin engaging in God's work in the world? These foundational pieces are so important 
because how we begin will be instrumental for uh, how we continue in the work that God has called us to. Those foundational pieces are vital for our makeup and our mission as a church. Similarly to building a house, you know, maybe you've been in, in the experience before of building a new house and the things that captivate you are uh, the count nice, but the, the thing that's most important when building a house is, of course, the foundation. Because if you don't have a good foundation in place, whatever you do after that won't matter. It'll fall apart eventually if you don't have a good foundation in place. Similarly, in the days of traveling, so when people would cross from Europe over to the, the United States and uh, this nation was being founded, how you set up that ship to sail was so important because if you were off by just one degree when you were leaving Europe, that would seem so small and minuscule, but that could mean the difference of arriving in like Maine or Cuba when you actually got to the destination. Those early steps, that, those early planning stages, the, the first things we do as we engage in God's mission are vitally important. And so I wanna consider Nehemiah's example as he began to rebuild, as he began to carry out God's work in the world, what are the first steps that he took? I think there's some powerful things for us to learn from those first steps that he took as a church. It, it calls to memory a, a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says the following, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I want us to be skillful, thoughtful, master builders, if you will, when we think about building the church and applying that to these foundational pieces uh, that we need to focus on as we begin engaging in God's mission. So what did Nehemiah do? What were his first steps? Let's just look back over these verses briefly and set the context of what's going on. Nehemiah is in Susa. So this is a capital city in the Persian empire. The Israelites were exiled under the Babylonian reign, uh, but power had changed hands in the region and the Persians were now in power. And so Nehemiah rises to a very significant position. God promoted him to one of the highest positions that you could have in the government system. He was a cup bearer for the king. So he would have been one of the most trusted people in the king's presence. And it says that uh, his brother comes along, I suppose, and pays him a visit. And maybe they're engaging in small talk. You know, how's mom and dad? How's everything with the rest of the family? What have you been up to? And then uh, along the way in the conversation, Nehemiah asks his brother, how are things? His brother's name is uh, Hanani. Hey, Hanani, by the way, how are things going in Jerusalem? I know under Ezra, the temple has been rebuilt. That, that happened a long time ago. Is everything okay in Jerusalem? No, Nehemiah, actually it's not. Uh, things are not good at all. In fact, the walls are broken down and the gates are still destroyed by the fire that was set so many years ago. The walls, of course, would have been incredibly important in those days. That's why they're a central focus of this passage because to survive in those days, your walls were the thing that protected you. It's what gave you a sense of stability uh, uh, and safety so that any passing robber or any passing nation couldn't just sweep inside your city and do what they pleased. Your walls were vitally important. And so uh, Nehemiah's brother presents to him, hey, things are not good. The people, it says, are in great trouble and shame. 
So that news hits Jeremiah. Now let me ask you, or sorry, that news hits Nehemiah. And, and, and let me ask you, you receive that news headline. What's your response? What are your foundational steps that you would take in that moment? Man, some of us are so overwhelmed with information and bad news on your phone that you'd hear the walls are broken down, the people are in great trouble and great shame, join the party, everything's falling apart in the world and you just move on, you just scroll past it. You've become so calloused to bad news that surrounds us in the world that it, it wouldn't move you at all. Others of you maybe would commiserate for a minute. Oh my gosh, the walls are still broken down. That's so hard for the people, man. Wow, that must be rough. Let me, I'm gonna be praying for them. Some of us, when we hear that news, would jump a meet some plans, sketch out a proposal that could help out this situation. Uh, some guys in my men's group actually lay brick. I think I could pull them together. We may be able to help out with something. Uh, uh, I can't jump into action, but maybe I can send some money there. Like you, you would immediately respond with busyness that you'd take. Here's Nehemiah's step. You know what he did, number one? Number one, what did Nehemiah do when he heard that news? He felt. He felt. Some of you are excited that we're gonna talk about this. Others, it's weird. Like that's a point in a sermon that we're gonna talk about, about Nehemiah, uh, uh, Nehemiah's feelings. But read with me verse, verse four. As soon as I heard these words, this report, doesn't say that he... He rose up, he wrote some letters, and he got busy. No, listen to what it says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Why do we need that information? So just helpful to note, Nehemiah was a little bit dramatic. He got the bad news. So just give me five minutes. Let me pull myself together and then we can get to work. No, the, the, the experience that Nehemiah has with this news is actually very relevant for us as we think about doing God's work. Why? Because when we are carrying out God's work in the world, it's not enough for it to just be a checklist of things that we go through. It's gotta be a burden that grips our heart. The news of what God is doing in the world has to be more than just, okay, get busy, let's go, but something that enters deep within our soul, something that consumes us, something that grips us, and that's what is happening with Nehemiah, and that was gonna be very important for Nehemiah because he's gonna hit a lot of obstacles along the way. There's gonna be a lot of opportunities where Nehemiah would wanna take an exit ramp from this job of rebuilding the wall, and so he has to not just know what he needs to do, he needs to feel deeply what God feels about his city. He, he needs to be gripped, not just at a mind level, soul God feel in that moment towards his people as they are in great trouble and shame. What are the emotions, if you will, that Nehemiah enters into in that moment? I don't think I understood what Nehemiah was feeling in that moment until I had a conversation with one of our members earlier this week. We were just having small talk and it began with just what are some of the things that burden this brother? And uh, he's older and, and has kids that are, that, are, that are older. And he said, man, the, like the main thing that burdens me is just the welfare of my kids. It's hard and probably the thing that, that, that grips me more than anything else is watching my grown kids just struggle, have a hard time. And so we, we carry the conversation on and, and we, we start reading this passage. I just wanted his thoughts on, on this passage. And I just asked, these, these five verses, what stands out to you? How does, it, how does it connect with you? And he said to me, 
man, God must feel about his people the way I feel about my daughter. I've seen her from her infancy grow into the beautiful woman that she is today. Just like God saw Israel grow from infancy into the uh, dynamic, beautiful people that it had become before the exile. I've seen her potential. I know her beauty. I know what she's capable of. Just like God had seen all of that. But as he looks at them right now, as I look at my daughter right now, she's distressed. She's in trouble. And it breaks me. It breaks me as a father to see my daughter in that way. What does God feel about his people? Not that they just messed up again and we need to rebuild some walls. He's gripped by the state of his people. And if Nehemiah is going to have anything to do with what God is wanting to do in that moment in history, he needs to feel something of what God feels. He has to move past just a list of things to do to something that, that reaches him at a soul level. He needs to feel the way that God feels in that moment. And so last week we, we had this discussion. I think it was a good thing for us to consider. It's good for us to think rightly, to think, think God's thoughts. It's good for us to live rightly, to live as God would have us live. But do we ever consider, God, do I, do I feel what you feel? Do, do I, does my inner life, my emotions, the things that I am passionate about, am I gripped by the same things that grip you? And so here's, here's just my encouragement in your own prayer life this week, just to begin praying this prayer. God, I don't wanna just run into what you have for my life. I know you wanna use me, you wanna work through me, but first of all, first of all, would you grip me with the things that grip you? Would you allow me to even be burdened by what's happening Man, starting your church. Man, what a year it's been of just, not just our church, but the church in America in general of just constant controversy and debate and, and pettiness. What if it gripped us the way that it grips God for him to look at his church that's divided and broken up on silly lines? And then in the world, God, grip me for what grips you in the world. Man, it burdens me, Lord. I want to be burdened, not just know the fact that we've not had baptisms in a while. Lord, I want to be burdened by the fact that we long to see people baptized in this church. Uh, burden me with the things that burden you in this city, the opioid epidemic that continues to rage, the fact that homelessness is a significant problem here, human trafficking, whatever it is, God, whatever you would have me uh, carry, let me be burdened by the things that burden you. That was step one for Nehemiah. He wasn't just gonna rush into action. He wasn't just gonna start building. He allowed himself to sit in the grief, in the weight of what was happening in that moment. So step one, Nehemiah sat down, he wept, and he mourned for the state of affairs. And step two, what does Nehemiah do? He fasts. He fasts. Now, I found this pretty funny because, you know, Nehemiah's got this very practical job that he needs to get done. He needs to build a wall. And if it were put on me, hey, your job, what God wants you to do is build a wall. My first thought is, wow, I better get it. That's not what Nehemiah does. He doesn't turn towards food. He turns away from food. He, he, he foregoes food for this, this calling that he has on his life. Now, I don't have time to go deep into fasting. I would actually refer you to a sermon we did back in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you just look on our website, we, we have a much more detailed discussion about fasting. I just wanna focus on one feature that I think was important for Nehemiah in this moment. Why do we fast? What does it do? One of the things that fasting helps us with is focusing. Fasting focuses us. And we need to be focused because we are, as human beings, 
desire factories. We desire and crave so many different things. God made us that way. God made us as consumers that long and desire and crave different things. Well, there are times where we need to focus the full weight of our desires as humans in one direction. All of our craving weight, if you will, placed on one thing. And when we do that, it causes us to pray differently. It causes perhaps God to respond differently. If we have this level of urgency where we say, God, I am turning away from food. I'm focusing on one thing right now. I gave this illustration back at the sermon on fasting, but I think it's a relevant one. It came from a a, a theologian pastor named Paul Washer. He described fasting in the following terms. Imagine you have been planning a vacation for years. You've been saving money. Uh, You've been looking at the perfect Airbnb to stay in. You've booked it. You've been accumulating extra vacation time at work so that you can get away. You've been daydreaming. You can barely sleep the night before because you are so excited to go on this vacation. The day comes for you to go. You start going to the car and you're gonna drop your kids with the grandparents along the way. And while you're going to the car, one of your children falls to the ground unconscious. Now, what are you thinking in that moment? Oh, is this gonna mess my vacation up? I wonder if the grandparent can help out with this. What if someone were to come to you in that moment and say, how could I think of vacation at a time like this? The the desire for your child has eclipsed to a much greater greater degree the desire that you have for that temporary pleasure. What are we doing when we fast? Here's what we're saying to God. God, how could I think of food at a time like this? The city of Jerusalem is in ruins. Lost people abound in our city. You're wanting to build and move in the church. How could I think of food at a time like this? Your longing for God's presence, your longing for his power in your midst has eclipsed the desire that you have for food. And so here's just an invitation, a call on us, if you will, that I have for us as a church as we begin praying on Wednesday nights this summer. Man, the elders of this church have asked y'all to do a lot of things from like production team, the way you serve in kids, changing diapers. I mean, we could go down the list of all kinds of things that we've asked y'all to do. Here's what I wanna ask you to do this time. I wanna ask you not to eat, okay? Until Wednesday. I'm just kidding, not that far. Let's take it slow. Here's, here's what I wanna, wanna ask us to do. What if, what if, We filled up brew, and then we're gonna be in a different location for the rest of the summer. But what if we filled up these prayer meetings on Sunday nights, the room filled with people saying, God, how, how, how could we think of food at a time like this? How could we think of food when we just long more than anything else for you to fall, let your hand rest on this church to build it and to make more disciples? How could we think of food at a time like this? And so maybe for you, what that looks like, just taking baby steps in that direction. You know, maybe if there's always an afternoon snack, begin with that. Take that away and come into the prayer meeting just, you know, a little bit more hungry. Maybe you could forego lunch that day. Just, just have some breakfast in the morning, forego lunch, and then come into that prayer meeting, fasted, ready to, to fully focus your desires on our desire, on our longing. Maybe you're more accustomed to fasting you can take today. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I think it would be powerful. I think it would be very powerful for us to fill that room with people fasted, saying, God, more than we want food, we want your presence in the life of our church. So, 
He prays. I prayed before the God of heaven, and I just want you to observe the, the length here. For days, for days, I continued praying and fasting. And then next week, we'll look in his prayer about how he even did his praying day and night, that this wasn't just a quick prayer. This was a season of prayer that he was engaged in. And I think there's a couple observations that I want to pull from his prayer that are relevant for you and I in this room. The first observation is not that spiritual, but it's very, very important for some of you to realize. Did you know that you can actually pray about anything? Like Nehemiah is not preparing to preach or to lead Sunday school or to lead a discipleship group. Here's Nehemiah's job. Build a wall, <laughs> put bricks on top of each other. That is what you're supposed to do. And the rest of his team that was with him might be thinking to themselves like, yeah, okay, like let's say a quick prayer, but Nehemiah, let's not over-spiritualize this, okay? Like we've got a wall to build, let's pray, amen, and let's get to work. But that's not how Nehemiah thinks about it. He understands that there's not this separation in his life between sacred and secular or spiritual and non-spiritual. His job is to be a construction foreman, get a wall built, and he prays for it. If Nehemiah can pray for that in the context of his job, you can pray in the midst of anything that you have going on in your life. Like you may think that your day-to-day -day is very unspiritual. You're an accountant. Uh, you know, you do gardening. Uh, you know, you write code. You do things that are very practical. God doesn't care about this. No, you can actually pray and pr ask for God's favor in whatever it is that you're doing, what <clears throat> whatever workplace situation that you find yourself in. We can pray for anything at all times, regardless of what we're going through. Nehemiah does it to build a wall. So I, that's the first observation that I want to make of his prayers. And, and then the second one is this. If Nehemiah needed to pray and have a season of prayer to build a wall, how much more though do we need to wall to get bricks on top of each other? How much more do we need to pray to see disciples added and transformed in the life of our church? Nehemiah prayed uh, so that bricks could be lifted from the ground and put on a wall. We have to pray so that we can see lives raised from death to life in Christ. If Nehemiah needed prayer for his job, how much more do we need it in our day? We need to pray and seek God in ways that I'll just readily acknowledge that we haven't before in the life of our church. I was reflecting on, on this subject, like a season of prayer and fasting. And, and I, I think sometimes back to our early days. So five years ago was when New City was coming together. And I often think, if I could go back, what would I do differently during that time? And there's certainly different things. This is probably the biggest one. We had our core team and it was incredible. We had a community of people come together to get this church planted. And we'd have these meetings on Sunday nights where we were like, we'd maybe have brief worship. Someone would share their testimony and we got strategic and practical. Here's how it's going down. Here's how we're doing community groups. Here's how we're doing Sunday services. Here's the people we need on teams. What would I do differently? Man, I would cut like 90% of that. And I would say to our core team, here's what we're doing. We're gonna fast and pray every Sunday for this thing to happen. And we're gonna pray and seek and long for God's presence to fill our church. Now, the good news is we can actually build that into the life of our church right now, which is why we are taking this summer to pray. 
And what I'm asking for in these Wednesday night prayer meetings is to do more than just the usual suspects who come to prayer meetings. Some of you know who you are. When there's a prayer meeting, you're there. And the rest of us just rely on y'all. Y'all got it. You know how to pray. Thank you. Hey, what if we had more than just the usual suspects to show up at our prayer meetings through this summer on Wednesday nights? We just said, hey, listen, whatever I've got going on that night can go on pause for a season so that we can seek after the presence of God like never before. Man, we've laid out a goal, and this is how God always works out his mission in the world. He calls his people, you and I, oh, so that we would humble ourselves and seek his face, and at the end of the day, he could get all the credit for his work in our midst. So we've laid out a goal. We wanna see more disciples in our church. We've even gone so far as to name a number. God, would you add 50 people? Would you add 50 people into our discipleship groups that are not presently pursuing you as disciples of Jesus over the next year? That is far beyond our ability to grasp. One new disciple is beyond our ability to grasp. What if we prayed, God, we can't, but you can. Would you make us vessels of your presence and your power that we could carry out your ministry of building up the church in our city? Those are the first steps. That's how the foundation is laid. It's not just with Nehemiah. Jesus understood this. Luke chapter 10, verse two, so relevant for our time. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. Man, I'm struck by how ready the harvest is right now in really all over the world in our own context. So many people through COVID have moved across the country. We've got new people all around our city. So many people have had their core beliefs shaken. So many people have been through a a, a place of pain and hardship through everything that we went through. How ready the harvest is. So what do we do? Jump into action? No, the harvest is ready. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send laborers into the field. That is what we begin with. That's what we begin with. Paul, the the great church planter, said the same thing. Colossians 2, verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. We, as a church, need to pray like we haven't before. So it begins on Wednesday night. I hope we'll see you there. He felt, he, he sat in the grief, the weight of what was going on. And then the final thing that I want you to observe is that Nehemiah traded. Nehemiah, it's subtle, but you're gonna see it in a second. He makes a trade or a substitute in this passage. I'm reading this powerful book. I hope y'all will go grab it. It's called The J-Curve of the Christian Life. And the author makes just a very simple point All true love, true love, that's the the key qualifier. True love is based on substitution. It's based on trading or exchanging. Let me give you an illustration of this. I remember a couple years ago, my own family was just having a hard time with some things. Among the things that were going on, what was needed was a new deck. Their, their back deck was deteriorating, falling apart. And I just, kind of like Nehemiah, I'd never really built anything before, but God put it in my heart to build something. And so I wanted to build them a new deck. And many of you know, if I were to have done that, not only would they have had a deck, not had a deck, their whole house may have been rendered condemned, unlivable, if I had begun the process of building for them a deck. So I went to my father-in-law, And I said, hey, listen, you know what I've got to bring into this project. Could you help me at the very, just get me going. And I'm pretty sure once you get me going, you could go on from there. 
He knew that was not going to happen, that full supervision was going to be needed for this project. So here's what we did in the middle of like June or July. It was right in the you know, beautiful weather that we enjoy in Northern Virginia. Man, we, we went out, we, we got a bunch of wood and we, we started building a deck and it was miserable. It was a hundred degrees. We had coolers filled with Gatorade and water. We drank all of it and it sweated out immediately. We had busted thumbs from hammers and uh, you know, uh, cuts and scrapes and calluses and blisters able to move. Now, what happened in that moment? Where was there a trade or a substitute? Well, my my father-in-law traded his couch for the hot sun. He traded comfort for blisters and calluses. Uh, He traded his free time to being bound to this project. Why? Because he had to, his arm was twisted. No, when we love someone, we make trades. We make exchanges. We take things that are important and valuable to us and we exchange them in love so that the people we love can experience the, uh, the things that are important and valuable to them. Now, where is Nehemiah making a trade in this passage? Well, consider where he begins. He is a cupbearer to the king, okay? You know this man eats good. Like if you are in the king's presence, even the leftovers, if he gets to go back in the kitchen and eat them, this man eats good. What does he do? He trades it. He starts fasting. What else does he experience? He, he is in perhaps the most comfortable place in the world, the Persian empire, the most powerful place on planet earth. There he is in the presence of the king. You know he has some fine accommodations that he's living in. He trades it. He exchanges it to go to a busted down city with no comforts or luxuries. He exchanges it. He's in safety. He is next to the most powerful person in the world. He exchanges it. And we will see because of Nehemiah's mission of building this wall, he often finds his life at risk. People want to kill him because of this project that he's undertaken. True love is based on substitution. We trade things. We exchange things for the people we love. In in short, you could put it like this. In love, we allow ourselves to experience death so that those we love can experience life. We die to things that we like and are valuable and important to us for the sake of those we love experiencing the life for them. And of course, Nehemiah is setting the pattern for a leader who would come and make trades, exchanges, substitutes. Jesus, the true leader of God's people eternally, exchanges all of the glories and comforts in heaven to enter into this busted down broken world that we live in. Our life of sin, he exchanges it. He exchanges our condemnation for forgiveness. And of course, most fundamentally, he exchanges taking on our death so that we could experience his life. That is the gospel we believe. That is what we rest in. That the God of the universe loved us so much, he traded his life for our death. As we get ready to take communion this morning, I want you to hear these words from Philippians chapter two. Concerning Jesus, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of God of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear the trade? The exchange, the substitute? He took on his position as king and became a servant. He took on his, uh, his divinity and took on human form. He traded his life for death for you and for me. And that is what we celebrate through the bread and through the cup. This morning, we're gonna come forward. A piece of bread is gonna be handed to you that signifies Jesus making the trade. Here's my life for your death. And then we take the cup that symbolizes Jesus's trade. Here's my blood. We go through death that those who we love might experience more life. Would you take hold of those realities as you remember them this morning? And if you're here this morning and you don't believe this message, you don't believe the reality that Jesus, God's son, took on human form and gave his life and rose from the grave. If you don't believe that, please don't come forward. Remain in your seat. But the trade offer is yours. The trade offer from the God of heaven and earth is yours this morning. The God of heaven and earth comes to us this morning and says, I will take all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your dysfunctional broken life without me. I will take all of it and I will pay the penalty for it on the cross. And in its place, here's what I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you forgiveness. I'm gonna give you a new identity where where you are viewed as perfect before the God of heaven. I'm gonna give you new life in me, a, a new heart, a new place where our life is lived out of, where you'll now have these new desires to, to follow me and live as you were always meant to live. And I will give you life everlasting in my presence. That's the trade. That's the exchange that God offers you this morning. It's on you to receive it. It's on you to receive it for yourself and say, Lord, I believe it. I believe in your love you substituted. You stood in my place on the cross I believe that and I receive it this morning. So let me pray, invite the worship team back up here and let's take just these moments to remember the great trade, the great substitute that God has made through his son on our behalf. God, we acknowledge this morning what true love looks like. We often base it on feelings or what makes us happy. That's not what true love looks like. True love looks like substituting, trading, dying so that other people can have life. Lord, I pray that we would be just humbled, floored this morning at how you have traded your life for us. You've given it up in love for us that we might live. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people like Nehemiah. In light of that, we find opportunities to substitute the things important for us in love, that we would die so that other people could have life, whether that's in our marriage, with our kids, for the church, with our finances, with our time, with our preferences and hobbies. Lord, would we put things down to death in love so that other people can experience life? Lord, would you draw us now into your presence as we seek you this morning? Would you just meet us and continue communing with us? 
in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.